of our scripture this morning, which now comes from the book of Titus, starting off in chapter 1, Titus 1 through 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I had been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You may be seated. We uh, start in our newest book of the Bible today, Titus. Since I've been here, it's been almost nine years now, may will be nine years that we've been merged Providence, Providence 2.0, I say. Um, since I've been here, we've been through, and correct me if I'm wrong, anybody that can remember, and um, if I miss something, but Philippians, 1 John, John, Romans, we did John and Romans back to back. What were we thinking? First uh, John, John, Romans, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Malachi, Matthew, Ruth, Jonah, and then most recently First Timothy from the pulpit. So our 13th book starts now as Merged Providence, the little epistle of Paul to Titus. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to set the scene in a brief introduction and then cover the first four verses, which um, Will read there. may not sound like much, uh, especially after those last two messages in 1 Timothy, which covered 10 and then 11 verses each, bigger passages. But this introduction, these first four verses of Titus, set the stage for the whole book. And this book is like concentrated doctrine. Uh, John MacArthur said it's vacuum-packed, and so you pull it out and it just starts expanding. Uh, and I, We'll see that definitely today. Um, and they set the stage with this concentrated doctrine for what we're going to see the whole way through. What seems like a simple statement here in verses 1 to 4 opens the door for a whole slew of thoughts and even comprehensive doctrines. And we'll see that through everything we look at today. But first, a quick intro into the setting and the main components of this letter. First of all, if you'll remember, we started making our way through the pastoral epistles with 1 Timothy, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, and they're called the pastoral epistles because, obviously, these two young guys, Timothy and Titus, did pastoral-type work. They were both sent by Paul in the places where Paul sent them or left them. And they focus so much on correcting faulty doctrine, and they focus so much on the life of the church. In 1 Timothy, we saw Paul urging Timothy to correct bad teaching so that the church can be the church and that they would know how to conduct themselves within the church. 2 Timothy is going to be more of a personal discipleship letter, more of a one-on-one thing. And then here in Titus, what I think we'll see 
Titus is mostly concerned with the church being the church to serve the world around them. Okay? So in these pastoral epistles, we see the church serving the church, the individual member serving the individual member, and the church serving the world around it. And that's kind of the flow of the pastoral epistles. And we've seen 1 Timothy, and we'll start Titus today for that. Now, setting-wise... What we're looking at here in Titus, and again, it's so important to understand the historical and the contextual setting that the letter was written in. And this is a personal letter from Paul to Titus. Um, probably, and take these timelines with a grain of salt. I mean, it doesn't say the month of Nisan, day 1262 in the year of our Lord. It doesn't say that. Um, But this letter was probably written between Paul's first and second imprisonments in the late, mid to late uh, 60s AD. Um, On his way to Rome before he was imprisoned the first time, so this was after his three missionary journeys and he'd went back to Jerusalem and he got arrested and he appealed to Caesar and they took him to Rome. That was the first time that he went to Rome. Uh, on that trip to Rome, Paul had sailed and they, they, they did a quick stop or two on the island of Crete, kind of trying to wait out some weather. And, uh, but then they sailed from Crete. So they touched down there and Paul did a little bit of work there, but you don't see him doing much in Crete. And then after being released from prison, and we don't know this, again, because it's, it's not in the Scripture, he probably sailed back there uh, to what could be called his fifth trip, which again is not documented in the New Testament. Uh, some people think that he did make it to Spain and that he came back and ended up being imprisoned in Rome a second time, which he never got out of that imprisonment. They ended up cutting his head off uh, for the gospel. Um, so <clears throat> maybe, possibly, on what we would call this fifth trip, he may have went back to Crete to help establish some churches there. But what we see here in Titus <clears throat> is that Paul appoints Titus to help finish setting up these churches on Crete that had been established there. And we see from our text for next week uh, that the work that primarily needs done is to appoint elders in every church and to make sure the doctrine, the pure, sound, apostolic doctrine, is established in the churches that were in every town there in Crete. And we see that in Titus 1.5, which is the first verse of next week's passage. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now note that Crete is an island. Crete is not a city. There are towns on the island of Crete, and every town had a church. And Titus is appointed to go through the whole island into the towns where they had established churches and to appoint elders in every town as Paul had directed him. Now, Titus, let's talk about him a second. We've talked about the pastoral epistles. We've talked about the setting of the letter. Let's talk about Titus a little bit. We don't know a whole lot about Titus. He's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts oddly enough, which chronicles so much of Paul's works and journeys. We don't have a narrative of how Paul and Titus met. 
Titus is mentioned as going with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem when there was controversy about what should be included in the common teachings between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers when Paul presented before the apostles the revelation that he had received. We see that in Galatians 2. Then after 14 years I went up, Paul says, again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Uh, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Okay, so from this, we know Titus was a Greek. He didn't have Jewish roots like Timothy did. Um, He was not circumcised, and he did not get circumcised just to... Um, satisfy the Jews' desire for that practice, which would be basically like proselytizing. Um, So Titus was a Greek. He did not have a Jewish background. And in today's passage, Paul calls Titus my true child in a common faith, which seems to imply that Titus became a believer as a result of Paul's preaching and Paul's ministry. Now, Paul mentions Titus a few other times, and we'll skate through these pretty quickly. 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13, Paul telling of his journeys, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them in Troas and went on down to Macedonia. And then later in 2 Corinthians 7, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So get this picture in your mind. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and obviously he had sent Titus to the Corinthians to kind of figure out what's going on with them because he heard they were upset with them. And so he sends Titus to Corinth and says, hey, what's going on here in Corinth? Let me know. So Titus goes to Corinth. They end up touching base again here in Macedonia. And Titus says, hey, it's good. You know, they're, they're, uh, they, they long for you. Um, they, they're mourning over the, the, the grief, the, the rift that might be between us. They have a zeal for you, Paul. And that calls Paul to go, yay. Thanks, Titus. Appreciate that. And then 2 Corinthians 8, and he's talking about now the collection for the impoverished saints back in Jerusalem that they're taking from all these people in Macedonia, Achaia, all these places. So Paul's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying about this collection that they're taking up. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus... He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So, and one other passage, 2 Timothy 4.10. This is Paul near the end of his life. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Okay, so Demas, not so good. It seems like Crescens and Titus have been sent somewhere to do something by Paul. So what we see from all of these accounts, from Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, it looks like, after having seen Titus in Macedonia, in Corinth, in Dalmatia, and here in our text today in Crete, it would appear that Titus was a trusted co-worker of Paul and that Paul used him kind of as a utility man. Any baseball people in here? 
the utility man, the, the guy that just plays every position. So he can, he, can, he can play the infield, he can play the outfield. Heck, in a pinch, he, he's your backup catcher. He can just do whatever you need him to do. And he's not a superstar at any of these things. He just does everything pretty well. And so it seems to me like Titus is kind of Paul's utility man. Titus, I need you in Dalmatia. Titus, I need you to go to talk to the Corinthians. Titus, would you go to Crete? I got some stuff. Yeah, sure, Paul, whatever you need done. That's kind of the feel I get from Titus, okay? Um, sent to handle many different situations, some of them even interpersonal, and all of them regarding work with the churches. So we find him here on the island of Crete. Um, if you see here, there's a map of the Grecian world, the, Gre- the Greco-Roman world, and Crete's this big island down here um, near, the, near the speaker. That's where Crete's always near the speaker. If you're looking for Crete, it's near the speaker. Just see. Um, so you see it's the biggest of the Grecian islands. Um, and Titus, who again um, would have been familiar at least with the area of Crete, uh, having possibly been there before working with Paul, but we don't know that for sure. Um, it's a whole different situation here in Crete than it was for Timothy in Ephesus, okay? Ephesus had fully developed doctrine, as we're learning on Wednesday nights in this letter from Paul to the Ephesians. It's high, Sierra, like seated with Christ in the heavenlies, every spiritual blessing. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, so they were doctrinally just imbued with all of this stuff from Paul, And Timothy was sent there as Paul's apostolic emissary. Well, Crete, literally an island, would have had towns all over the island and the population would have been, well, let's just say rough. Okay? Again, borrowing from next week's text. One of the Cretans, Paul says to Titus, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, quote, This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, (laughs) what if that was my testimony about you guys to people? Well, see, those guys at Providence, they're always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And then somebody goes, yes, that's true. (laughs) But these are the people that Titus is dealing with. This is the, the context that these churches are being established in. And Paul says, that's true, that guy was right, that Cretan was right, talking about his own people. So, Titus, you're going to have to rebuke them sharply. Why? To make sure that their faith is sound. Sometimes, to get sound in the faith, we need somebody to kick us in the rump. We need somebody to correct stinking thinking. And that's what Paul is saying Titus is going to have to do as he goes from town to town appointing elders in these churches and teaching the doctrine uncompromisingly rebuking these people soundly, sharply so that their faith would be sound. So that's Crete. Uh, One other thing in the setting here, you've heard me use this term before probably, Judaizers. These guys, these people were a constant bane to Paul's life and ministry. Paul conducted his missionary work in a pretty consistent way. If you read through his missionary journeys in Acts, 
He'd go into a town, and usually the first thing that he would do was to find the Jewish synagogue there and start his teaching ministry to them, trying to convince the Jews who had a religious background, and an Old Testament background is what we would say, he would try to convince them that Jesus was the promised Christ. So, some would believe, some would say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, we trust Him, and we're saved because of our faith in Him. But the rest of those Jewish folks who didn't believe Paul's message would go in behind them and they would basically try to make sure that these new believers in the teachings of Rabbi Jesus, as taught by Rabbi Paul, that these new believers knew that they had to keep the Jewish law if they were to be approved by God. That's what the Judaizers did. They taught the need for circumcision, keeping the Torah, basically, again, like I said before, a proselytizing to the Jewish religion for, quote, real salvation. I know what Paul said, but if you really want to have the favor of God, you've got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised, you basically got to be Jewish. So we're going to help you do that. And Paul is going, no, no, exactly not that. It's over and over and over again. There were even groups of these Judaizers who would basically tell Paul from place to place and just go in behind where he was, and when he'd leave town, they'd come in and say, okay, Paul said this, but let us tell you the truth. And so they're basically trying to undo what Paul had done. Now we're going to see that here in Titus and that mindset of the Judaizers. And it's not prevalent, but it's in there and you need to know about it. Paul spends so much of his time in many of his letters, including Titus, trumpeting the need to not listen to or follow the teachings of the Judaizers. There is one way to salvation and that is through the finished work of Christ alone. So that's the Judaizers. Finally, we got Paul as one more main cog in this letter. Obviously, he wrote it. And again, we find Paul in this time frame between his Roman imprisonments, probably. He's out and about, and he's looking to get to the ends of the earth after having proclaimed the gospel in his first three missionary journeys and his first trip to Rome during his first imprisonment. He's at, and now he's looking to move freely about and find somewhere where he can preach the gospel where it's never been heard before. And he's got guys and people here and there and sending them here and there and taking care of all this stuff. And we'll dig more into Paul in verses 1 and 2. So for now, the last thing we'll look at is the theme of the book before we get into the text. You could sum up the theme of Titus, sound doctrine leading to good works. That's basically the theme of Titus. Sound doctrine leading to good works. We see it in Titus 2, 11 to 14, which hopefully is familiar to a lot of you from last year. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this is what we believe, and that belief and that hope leads us to do good works. And then you see it again. In Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Sound doctrine leading to good works. That's basically the theme of Titus. So if we're going to start today in verses 1 through 4, what do you think we're going to get a lot of? Sound doctrine. We're going to get a lot of sound doctrine because it's doctrine leading to works, doctrine leading to works, doctrine leading to works, over and over and over again in this letter. And let me just say, this fir- these first four verses are packed with gigantic doctrinal 
themes and, and, and just underpinnings. So let me read those first four verses again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's all one big long sentence replete with colons and I'd put some ellipsis in there and maybe a few quotes here and there. One big, long, thick, rich sentence from one to four. And it is packed. And it's packed. Uh, The introduction to this letter, and I guess all of Paul's letters, basically is a treasure trove of theological truth. Don't just blow through Paul's introductions. Okay, Paul, grace, peace, blah, 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 blah. Okay, Titus, let's, let's get into this. No, you get into it from the get-go. Starting in verse 1, obviously. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Great day in the morning. So this is, again, keep in mind, this is the first part of the sentence that runs the full length of our passage today. So keep that in mind. We're going to take the verses as they come, but we want to keep them in the context of the whole introduction that runs from verse 1 to verse 4. So we, we start our letters today with, Dear John, or Hey Man, right? Or something. But Paul's consistent intro tells who he is and what he believes before looking at who he's writing to. And so the first word of the letter is Paul. Paul, which is his Greco-Roman name, came from Tarsus, had been a very highly regarded member of the ultra-conservatively religious sect known as the Pharisees. But something happened to Paul. Jesus happened to Paul. Like literally. You may know the story well, you may not. But as Saul, which was his Jewish name, his Hebrew name, Saul was Hebrew name, Paul was his Greco-Roman name. As he was traveling to Damascus to arrest anyone he found who may hold to the newly formed religion founded on the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, well, Jesus, who had died by crucifixion, had come back to life and shown himself alive to over 500 people and then had ascended into heaven, this very same Jesus showed up in violently bright light and knocked Saul off his horse and made him blind. He then introduced himself as Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus then tells Paul what to do, and Paul will spend the rest of his life doing what Jesus tells him to do. That's Paul. And now look at how he describes himself in this intro to this letter. Paul, a servant of God. Stop there. The word servant is the one we saw in 1 Timothy when we were talking about slaves. Doulos, it means slave. And if you'll remember, and if you don't, you're going to hear it again. The word means someone who is devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. A servant, an attendant. So Paul says, I'm Paul. And I'm devoted to another to the disregard of my own interests. Nice to meet you. But he's not just a servant. Paul, a servant of God and... An apostle of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now what's an apostle? 
The literal meaning is sent one. It means one who is sent by someone else, usually to carry a message. Now, we hear the word apostle, and we think of a high office, and we give it much esteem. The twelve apostles. Ooh. And that office is very special. Those twelve guys were given a very special place in the foundation of the church. But in the Roman world, anybody could be an apostle. Not one of the twelve, but friends, family members, slaves, anybody who carried a message to someone else for someone would be called an apostle. And the words spoken by the the apostle, the words spoken by the one sent, and this is so important, were as the very words of the one who sent them. I use this illustration all the time, and I guess I will till I'm dead. It's a good one. So if Asa goes up and tells John to clean his room, John says, whatever, Asa. But if Asa says, hey, John, Dad told me to come tell you to clean your room, Asa, as my apostle, carries my authority and my words, and John realizes that and does what Asa says. Not because Asa said it, because I said so. Dad said it. Oh, well, that changes things. And that's the thought of what it means to be an apostle. So Paul, this servant of God, is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And keep this in mind, I said it before, the interchangeability of the Godhead. One God, three persons. We're prone to separate them out as separate, but not the same. They are the same and separate. Okay? So... Paul will say, our great God and Savior. Well, who's our Savior? Well, Jesus is. So is God the Father our Savior? Well, sure He is. Is the Holy Spirit our Savior? Yeah, yeah, He is. So watch out for that. So so Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's not separating the Godhead, but it's showing their separate functions, one God, three persons. And that can really bend our brains, but, but think about it, pray about it, study it out, and you'll see it to be true. Okay, So he's God's slave and he's Jesus' messenger. He's owned by God and sent by Jesus as a messenger, carrying the message that Jesus has given him to speak. And it's not Paul's words that matter, it's Jesus' words through Paul. And what is that message that this apostle has been sent with? Well, we're going to read verses 1 to 3 again to see this full content of this message. So, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Again, it's just, it's, it's, it's literally too much to take in. So we're going to try to break this down and unpack it. So... Get this structure, okay? Paul is bringing the message of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And that message is, let's go back to verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Okay, so the message that Paul... And again, strap them on, guys. Let's put the thinking caps on. Let's engage. Let's really look at this. Let's look at the structure of it, what connects to what, and what's describing what, because it's very important to understand this. So this message that Paul is bringing from Jesus as his apostle, 
is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and for their knowledge of the truth. Whose knowledge of the truth? God's elect. And that knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. And it's in hope, Paul's Jesus' entrusted message is in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. What did God promise? Eternal life. To who? To the elect people. And at the proper time, God manifested this hope, this message of eternal life. He manifested that in His Word. How did He do that? Through the preaching with which I, Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now we're going to unpack that, so, but just I want, you, I want you to think about the structure here. And it's not just one big run-on sentence. I wish I had diagrammed it out. I'm just not that good, okay? I didn't pay that close attention in English class that I could have diagrammed this sentence to show what connects with what. Okay? So, you know, yeah, we're like dear John. This is like that times a million, right? Now this is the way to open a letter, y'all, by the way. So let's dive in here. First, Paul the Apostle, messenger of Jesus, is carrying Jesus' message, which is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now there's not a word wasted there. The message that Paul is proclaiming, carrying from Jesus, is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul is carrying a message that is aimed squarely at a specific crowd for a specific purpose. What Paul preaches is for the sake of someone. I really had a hard time conveying what for the sake of means. Because we just hear it and we're like, it means for the sake of. But the best description I could find was for someone's advantage or good. If I do something for your sake... It's for your advantage or good. Paul's message was for the advantage or good of someone or someones. Or actually, for something for those someones. Paul's message is for the sake of the faith. Hmm. Faith is belief or trust in something or someone. And here, Paul's message is for the sake of the faith of whom? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's the message that Paul's carrying. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And again, that word can just make us squirm, and we don't like it, but we should love it. God, the creator, the sovereign of the universe, has a group of people who are his elect. Now, what's that mean? The word for elect is eklektos. Eklektos, and it means chosen or picked out. By the way, what's the Greek word for church? Ekklesia, the called out assembly. Same root word here, okay? Called out, chosen, picked, handpicked. The called out assembly. God has chosen, picked out some people. For what? Well, Paul's message is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So the elect people have faith. That faith is what Paul's message is for. 
It's so that God's chosen people will have faith. Don't miss that. Paul's message is so that God's chosen people will have faith. Faith in what? Or in whom? Well, Paul goes on to say that his message is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge, the elect's knowledge of the truth. So these elect people put their faith in what? They put their faith in the knowledge that they have of the truth. Pilate's like, well, it is truth, right? Truth is that which is real, verified to be not a lie, verified to not be deception. So these elect have put their faith in what they know to be true, and that truth, Paul says, accords with what? Godliness. Godliness. It lines up with, this truth does, this message, this truth accords with, lines up, goes with godliness. So let's try to package this together here. This elect people have a message from Jesus proclaimed to them. They put their faith in that message and in the Christ that that message is describing and they now know what is godly. They know what is like God. They know what God is like and what they are called to do to be like God as a result. They are to be like God. They are to follow Him, emulate Him, reflect Him and His glory. Let us make man in our image. Our image bearers to reflect our glory, God said at creation. And they do all of that, why? In hope of eternal life. Okay? We mentioned this eternal life last week too, if you'll remember. And we said that it means not just length of life, but a quality of life. A superabundant, overflowing, too much life to contain and hold in ourselves kind of life. A God-like life that is overflowing into life for others. That's what eternal life, and that's what this message gives these elect people a hope for. In hope of eternal life. And this life, now watch this. This life was promised, Paul says, the apostle says, with the words that he was given to carry. This life was promised by God Himself. God who never lies. The holy God of eternity cannot say anything that isn't true. And in His perfect truthfulness, He has promised that His elect people who put their faith in His Word, brought by His messenger, will have, and the word is yes, have now... Eternal, superabundant, overflowing God life. God has promised it. But now watch this. When did He promise it? Well, that's a trick question. Because He promised it before there was time. So there wasn't a when when He promised it. Before the ages began... He promised that eternal life before the ages began, the apostle says. Now get that. Before the ages began, God declared that His elect people, and there weren't even people at this time, this 
point of eternity past. I don't know if there's a point in eternity. I don't know how that works. Before the ages began, God declared that His elect people would be given eternal life. Now I need to say that again. Before the ages began, God declared that His elect people would be given eternal life. It is mind-bending. It's mind-blowing. And we can try to explain that away. We can hate it. We can not like it. Or we can know that everything that God does is good. And we can celebrate it. We won't ever understand it completely. He's God. And we're not. And all of this happened before we were even created. In the council of the Godhead, before anything else was, God determined to promise that He would choose people who would be given eternal life. If you are a follower of Jesus, could there possibly be anything more praise-producing than this? I mean, really, for no reason other than the grace and love of God, before people were ever created, God set His love and His very life on people that He would make His very own. And now watch this. How does that eternal life make its way into these elect people's lives? God manifested that eternal life in His Word. The plan of God to give eternal life to His people was manifested, which means to make known, shown forth, in His Word. God chose to show who He was and to show the eternal life He was freely giving to His people In His Word. He could have written it in the clouds. He could have shouted it from the throne of heaven Himself. He could have sent angels. But He chose to manifest it through His Word. And how was that Word shared? And at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God shared His Word through preaching. Paul was a preacher, a proclaimer of the revelation of God given to him and the life and the teachings of Jesus. So Paul received this revelation. He met Jesus on the road. He poured out this gospel to Paul. And he said, preach this gospel and remember, teach them about me and my life and my teachings. God chose to reveal himself and to bring faith to his elect people By people preaching. What we see the apostles doing in the New Testament is in their preaching is passing on the teachings of Jesus and fulfilling his command to preach the gospel to every creature and to teach them all that he had commanded them, beginning in Jerusalem and reaching the uttermost parts of the earth, which they've done before the New Testament even ends. So grasp this. The very eternal life of God is transmitted through God's people preaching God's truth to God's elect people. 
The very eternal life of God is transmitted through God's people preaching God's truth to God's elect people. And Paul says he was entrusted with this preaching by the command of God our Savior. Remember, he's a slave carrying a message. And that's God's command. Here's my revelation of myself, God says. Preach it to people. And then just watch what I do. God promised in eternity past to give eternal life to His elect people as His messengers preached His word. And Paul introduces himself as one of the messengers commanded by God to preach this wonderful, powerful, life-giving message. And what a way to introduce yourself in a letter to one of your disciples. Hey there, it's me, Paul, and this is my doctrine. And what doctrine it is. And we could stay here a lot longer, but we don't have time. One other thing. Who, who's Paul writing to? To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul is writing to Titus. We already knew that, right? And we had a spoiler, sorry. And he refers to Titus as his true child in a common faith. So this probably means, and we mentioned this before, that Paul was responsible for delivering the gospel to Titus when God awakened Titus to this eternal life, leading to Titus' new birth. And once Titus was reborn, Paul's faith was his faith too. It was a common faith. And then Paul wishes the best wishes that he can to and for Titus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace is again, like we saw last week, the merciful kindness by which God exerting His holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Take all that in. That's grace. Peace is defined as the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is, which is another good definition. So yeah, these are two pretty good wishes for your hard-working disciple, wouldn't you think? And the source of these blessings is from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, one God, three persons. It's administered through the power of the Holy Spirit, who's not mentioned here. He's kind of the silent partner of the Trinity. He has a self-effacing ministry. He reveals Christ to people. He makes people recall what Jesus said, who Jesus is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's who the Holy Spirit is. So we don't see him mentioned here, but he's there. And again, that's a pretty good source. God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And all this sound doctrine, all these blessings, all of this amazing truth are going to come in awfully handy for Titus in the work that he's being called to do, which we'll get into starting next week. But from all of that, we've got to turn our attention now to application. And man, oh man, how do you apply this? I mean, we could have had 12 application points. I'll keep it at three. I know I overstepped my bounds last week and had four. I'll trim it back to three. Three E's again. Last week it was four E's. This week it's three E's. Experience, election, and engagement. I added the mint just now because it just didn't work. Experience, election, engagement. First application point is experience. Now watch this. 
Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now that word knowledge, well that phrase knowledge of the truth, we're going to look at two or three times in just a second. Knowledge of the truth is important, but that word knowledge there, there's two Greek words for knowledge. Okay? There's gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. That means I know information about something. Then there's epignosis. Okay, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis and epignosis. What's the difference? Gnosis is I know something. Epignosis means I have a precise and correct knowledge. I have an experiential full knowledge of something. And experience being really the, the big word there. Okay, I know that there is a place called Barbados. I've never been there. So I know about Barbados. If I would go to Barbados, I would know Barbados in a different way than I knew Barbados before. And Barbados just came out of thin air. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. So epignosis is experiential, full knowledge, correct knowledge, precise knowledge. And that's the word here for knowledge of the truth. It's epignosis. So my question in this application point of experience, do you have epignosis of the truth? Do you experience the truth in your life? Or do you just know something of the truth? The truth is A plus B equals C. 1 plus 1 equals 2. That's knowledge. But if I've got $1 and $1, aha, all of a sudden I've got $2. What is your experience with the truth of the gospel of the grace of God? Do you experience it in your life? Do you have epignosis of the gospel, of the truth, the doctrine of Christ? Or do you just know about it? That knowledge of the truth, I want to visit that in a couple couple passages here. This is good, 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, the epignosis of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And finally, 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. Watch this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's going to be a fun passage to cover, isn't it? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And then watch this. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is one of the scariest verses in the Bible for me. I know what it says. I can lay out the systematic theology. But 
what's it doing to change me? How am I experiencing this truth in my life? And the question that, that or not the question, the statement that Paul makes back here in Titus 1.1 is that he's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So if I'm experiencing this truth, it's leading me to be more like God. Is godliness a component of your life in an increasing and abounding way? Am I growing in godliness? Am I more like God today than I was last year? Am I more like God than I was last week? Am I growing in accord with godliness? If I'm not, this knowledge of truth is not happening in my life. I've got a gnosis and not an epignosis. The Jewish New Testament translates, this is truncated, But it says that Paul is an emissary sent to promote the trust and knowledge of truth which leads to godliness. An experience of the truth of the gospel leads us to be godly. Or it's just head knowledge. So what's your experience? I encourage you to be on your face. I encourage me to be on my face. Asking God for a knowledge of the truth. An epignosis of the truth. Which leads me to be more godly. And it's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try real hard to do better. That's not what this is about. This is about the power of the very words of God conforming me to the image of His Son so that I look more like Jesus. And I'm doing the things that Jesus would do if He were alive today in my setting. God, help me to do better. Forget that. No. God, help me to be godly. May the truth of Your gospel lead me to be more like You. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's epignosis of the truth. A true knowledge, a precise knowledge, an experiential knowledge of the truth. Because that's what the message of God does. It leads to godliness. So that's experience. Now election. And I know that word makes people squirm. And love it or hate it, Election is a sure fire sign of the very glory of God. Alistair Begg said the storyline of the Bible is the storyline of God taking the initiative and seeking out a people who are His very own. The storyline of the Bible is the storyline of God taking the initiative and seeking out a people who are His very own. That's the whole story of Scripture. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The generator, the beginner, the source of all things is God. We talked about this a couple Wednesdays ago, but I want to point this out again. Exodus 33, Exodus 33, 18, 19, Moses said, Please show me your glory to God. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
God, I want to see your glory. Okay, my name's the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. God, I want to see your glory. My name's the Lord. I show mercy to who I want to. I give grace to who I want to. God, I want to see your glory. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll show grace to whom I want to show grace. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Oh, that's what he said he would do, right? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. My name's the Lord. I'm merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'll show mercy to who I want to show mercy to. And I'll give grace to who I want to give grace to. That's the storyline of the Bible. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He did that. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, you praise God. Don't curse God. Well, why didn't you save everybody? Goodness gracious, he didn't have to save anybody. And in his love before the ages began, he selected, picked, elected a group of people whom he would pour his love out into and onto and who he would give his very life for and to. Just because he's gracious. Because God is the only free moral agent in the universe. And in His grace, He chooses to share His life with some people. 2 Timothy 1, 8-10 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel now there's a lot of other passages we could share here the main thrust here is that God elected a group of people hand selected a group of people before the ages began to be his reorder your thinking according to that truth reorder your affections according to that truth I was born with my head on fire running toward hell. And God reached out and plucked me by His choice, by His grace. For no other reason than He's God. Worship that God! And be amazed at His grace. Who am I? Why me? God's grace 
is the only reason. It's the only reason. So worship God as the selecting, choosing, electing God that he is. And know that he did it before the ages began, before there was time. Experience election and finally engagement. I'll scribble mint. What's that mean? Listen to me. Paul said it today. It's said many times in the scripture. Preaching is the only way that people will be saved. You know, but you just said God saves people based on His grace. It's true. And in His electing work, He has chosen that the method that He would use to proclaim His message is through preaching. A slave with a message from God to God's elect for the sake of their faith and their knowledge and hope. Eternal life was manifested at the proper time in His Word through preaching. So what's the application point? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. It can't fail. You're like, well, I'm not very good at it. Good. That means that you'll rely on God's power, not your persuasive argument. Well, I've got a pretty good outline memorized. Fine, share it. As long as it's biblical. Second Timothy 4, 1-2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So it's not just about proclaiming a gospel where people get saved. It's about proclaiming a gospel which continually edifies, shapes, and changes the people of God. We need to hear the gospel every day. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to preach it to each other. We need to hear it proclaimed through preachers and just normal people. Preachers aren't normal people, by the way, just so you know that. And and we need need to hear it through podcasts and, and, and radio and whatever way we can get it into our lives. Why? So that we can be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted with complete patience and teaching as the gospel pours into our lives and changes us and conforms us to the image of Christ. Jesus' last command, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You're like, aha, see, we do have to believe. It's true, we do. And where do you get the faith to believe? God gives it to you by work, a gracious work of His Holy Spirit. As the gospel is proclaimed, it gives us new life and we are given the gift of faith that we might trust in the finished work of Christ and then be conformed to His image by the very work of God. Your faith is a gift. I didn't even bring up Ephesians 2. But you're saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So go... In all the world, proclaim the gospel. And wherever you preach the gospel, whenever you preach the gospel, whoever hears that gospel and believes will be saved. But whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. Romans 10, we're almost done. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. 
How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. There will be people who disobey the gospel. Because the gospel is a command to repent, by the way. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, which is exactly what Paul said to Titus here in his introduction. That faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And the word of Christ activates new life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that new life puts its faith in the finished work of Christ. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25. Watch this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are, and you could say, the called, that's the literal wording, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Are you experiencing the power of God through the gospel that leads to godliness? Do you know the electing sovereign work of God, and are you engaged by preaching this gospel to the people all around you and to yourself. Paul, in our introduction today, lays all that out and says, this is my message. May it be ours too. Let's pray. Father, we are finite. We are created beings. And you and your grace have saved us. Help us, God, to be people who worship you in spirit and truth, who have an experiential knowledge of you, who know you as the electing God who shows mercy to whom you'll have mercy and gives grace to whom you'll have, show grace to. And may we engage the world around us with the glorious gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ to the praise of your glorious grace. Help it to be so in our lives, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive this benediction? Now to him, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us.